Daniel chapter 1 In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim king of Judah into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names, to Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food, and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the god took away their choice food and wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. What does it mean to follow Jesus Christ in our world today? What does it look like to be what we would call a Christian? What is the actual substance of the life 
of faith. Now this is a question that applies to everyone watching this broadcast. Whether you are a, a committed Christian, someone who perhaps is a church member, reads their Bible and prays regularly. Whether you're someone who's a curious skeptic, you're not quite sure what to believe, but you're, you're attracted to something about Christians and about the, the truth that they believe. Whether you're a young person uh, making your way through school or through university, or whether you're a, a young parent struggling to bring up children and trying to wrestle with how you do that in the right way in this changing world. Whether you're a worker who goes out and spends much of their time in some workplace or other in the city, whether you're a retired person who's figuring out what to do with the time you now have available, we do need to ask, what does it mean for us to follow Jesus Christ in our world today? And the book of Daniel is one of the finest resources that the Bible gives us. It helps to answer that question in some quite extraordinary ways. In the words of one Hebrew scholar, Robert File, it is dramatising a lesson about basic attitudes and discipleship. Daniel is dramatising lessons about basic attitudes and discipleship. And Daniel, as we're going to find, is full of drama. You probably know some of the stories already. Daniel in the lion's den. Daniel and the fiery furnace. And as we're going to find out today, Daniel and the benefits of a God-given vegetarian diet. More about that in a moment. Daniel is dramatic. It tells the story of four young believers who are uprooted and ripped away from the comfort zone of faith and family and home. They're transplanted into an alien culture that shares none of their beliefs and values in a, in a city hundreds of miles from home. And not only that, this alien culture is actively seeking to squeeze them into its own mould. Babylon wants conformity. Now the issues on one level here are very different from the ones we face. Babylon was a very religious place. A place with shrines and temples and idol statues. The Israelites were very religious too, but with a crucial difference. They believed in the one true God who had no statue or image to represent him. On the surface of it, the challenges that we face in, in the late modern world of the West are very different. Our official culture is secular, not religious. But you know, at the core of it, the issues are eternally relevant. Let me just point out two areas where biblical faith is under challenge in our contemporary times and then we will get to Daniel chapter 1. The first area is the challenge of doubt. The challenge of doubt. We live now in a unique time in history. We live in a world that probably for the first time could be described as more and more secular and in terms of belief it can be summed up like this. We're all doubters now. We're all doubters. Now, we all doubt. Charles Taylor is an influential Canadian philosopher, and he's asked a, a key question. Why was it virtually impossible not to believe in God 500 years ago in Western society, while 500 years later, many people find it virtually impossible to believe? You see the huge shift from in a mere 500 years from a time where it was virtually impossible not to believe in God to a time where now many people find it virtually impossible to believe. Something has happened during those 500 years that has changed the landscape of belief. The maps have been redrawn. 
But that doesn't mean that religious belief has died. In many ways, it is still growing. People are still turning to God in faith, but they're doing so in a completely different environment. They're doing so in an environment of doubt. So we're all doubters now. Christian believers, therefore, are niggled by doubts. They're on the edge of your mind all the time. James Smith, commenting on this, writes, we don't believe instead of doubting. We believe while doubting. We're all doubting Thomas now. And doubt has this kind of adhesive, sticky quality. If you leave it unchallenged, other doubts start to latch onto it, like uh, hair and fur kind of latch onto Velcro. And if you, if, you, if you find yourself eventually overwhelmed with the doubts, it's because they've mounded up together. So please let me encourage you not to be ashamed with your doubts and hide them. Bring them out into the open with your friends in Christian community or in your life group and talk them through with others who love and accept you and are on the journey with you. But you know, there's another side to this coin, which is very, very interesting. It's that non-believing people doubt too. They're haunted by the absence of God. They're haunted by the loss of all that God stands for, the source of true beauty and real life and joy and meaning and of a higher purpose, of a foundation for life, of a hope beyond the grave. Julian Barnes, the English novelist, famously started his memoirs with the words, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. So we're all doubters now. Christians are niggled by doubts and non-believing people are haunted by transcendence. We don't live in a simple black and white world with convinced atheists on one side and hardline blinkered fundamentalists on the other. Reality is much more complex than that. The challenge of doubt. The second challenge I want to point out is the challenge of conformity. The challenge of conformity. Now any Star Trek fans out there will no doubt remember the chilling portrayal of one of the most horrendous enemies that Star Trek ever produced. They were a powerful group called the Borg. Do you remember them? Now the thing about the Borg is although there were many individuals, they all spoke and they all thought as one. Their challenge was articulated like this. We are the Borg. You will be assimilated. Resistance is futile. You will be assimilated. Now surely such conformity of thinking wouldn't be insisted on in the Western world, would it? After all, doesn't our culture cherish and prize its freedom of speech, its freedom of belief? Actually, these freedoms could well be under threat. Let me give you a concrete example. Just last month, the Scottish Justice Secretary, Hamza Yousaf, talked about changes that he wished to make to hate crime legislation in Scotland. The new Hate Crime and Public Order Scotland Bill would introduce an offence of stirring up hatred against people with certain protected characteristics. The maximum penalty for such stirring up hatred would be seven years in prison. And Yousaf believes that this law, and this is important, should apply not only in public places, but also in private dwellings. Claire Foges, writing in the Times newspaper, points out that this could criminalise fireside chats between family members, and the informants might be children, or house guests, or cousins. She writes, anyone caught writing or saying anything that could be deemed intentional hate-stirring will be ripe 
for prosecution. But just think about that. Who would determine the offence? Who will determine what is considered hate speech? And how would historic biblical Christianity fare in such an environment? The challenge of conformity. We may not be very far away from what George Orwell described in 1984 as the thought police. Here's a quote from Orwell. The family had become, in effect, an extension of the thought police. It was a device by means of which everyone could be surrounded night and day by informers who knew him intimately. So back to our opening question. What does it mean to follow Jesus Christ in our world today? With these challenges in view. I'm going to make three points here, three points that I believe emerge from our chapter, chapter one. Three points from Daniel. It's a tale of crisis and conformity. Secondly, it's a tale of courage and courtesy. And thirdly, it's a tale of two kings. First of all then, a tale of crisis and conformity. Verses 1 and 2, if you want to look in your Bibles, describe in an unemotional, calm tone something that was an absolute catastrophe for God's people. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it or blockaded it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of his God. And these he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Now, this is an absolute calamity. A uh, few hundred years before, uh, we had King David and King Solomon, who was the last king to rule over a united monarchy. After Solomon, the country split in two. The northern part was called Israel and the southern part was called Judah. Slightly confusing, but the north was Israel and that capital city was Samaria. And the southern kingdom was called Judah and its capital was Jerusalem. About 140 years before this time, the northern kingdom had fallen to the Assyrian Empire, a great power from the east. And those tribes were wiped out and never seen again, the ten lost tribes of Israel. The smaller southern state of Judah had struggled on, but now it's game over. Because Nebuchadnezzar is here. Now Nebuchadnezzar's dad was a Chaldean, it's translated here Babylonian, and these people rose up and dominated the Assyrians. And now here is his son, Nebuchadnezzar II, the most powerful man in the world. And in the face of all that, the weak puppet king Jehoiakim doesn't stand a chance. It seems that Jerusalem fell in three phases, and this is describing the first one, 605 BC, the city was blockaded, damaged, the temple sacked, precious sacred items were carried away. And then in two further stages in the year 597 and 587 BC, the country was raped and pillaged, smashed and subjugated, and the people taken to exile. By the rivers of Babylon, sang the exiles, we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Then we remembered poplars. There on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. Psalm 137. It is impossible for us to overstate the devastation of the impact of this exile 
on the Jewish people, on their identity, on their conception of who they were and on all that they held dear. Their land and their homes were conquered. Their city, which they called the joy of the whole earth, had been destroyed. Their royal line, which had reigned in Jerusalem for 400 years, had been bullied, manipulated and finally cast aside. The temple that David and Solomon had built, which God had called his house, had been desecrated and torn apart. Its furnishings taken to glorify the shrine of pagan gods hundreds of miles away. And this adds insult to injury because it was taken to Babylon. Babylon, the epitome of human pride, human power and self-seeking glory. It appears then that the God of the Bible, the God of Israel, has been defeated by the gods of Babylon, a national tragedy. And in the midst of this crisis, some young men are dragged away with the spoils of war. You see, Nebuchadnezzar didn't want to just take things. He also wanted to take people. And just see who he took there in verse 3. The king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men, without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, just like I was as an undergraduate, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. So this is a description of the future leadership of the country Judah. And Nebuchadnezzar has specifically targeted these guys to be brought back to base. Now, why is that? It's a strategy. It will further weaken the leadership of Judah and make it dependent on Babylon. It will provide some useful and rather good-looking servants for Nebuchadnezzar. And, crucially, he is going to turn them into good Babylonians. So they'll look like Israelites and they'll sound like Israelites, but on the inside they would have been formed into Babylonians in their beliefs, their values, their culture. Remember, this is a tale of crisis and conformity. And look at the pressure to conform that is now being placed on these young men. Scholars think they were probably teenagers. Far from home, verse 4, they are to learn the language and the literature of the Babylonians. They will be speaking in a foreign tongue. And this education that they will receive has a lot of content related to magic, incantations and magic lore. Uh, to divination, to reading signs in nature of what the gods might want, and other forbidden practices for the Hebrews. Verses 6 and 7 shows us how they are renamed. Now, their original names all have elements to do with the God of Israel. The element El or the element Yah all relate to Israel's God. So Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. These are their names that their mother and father gave them. But now they're given Babylonian names, and it's very subtle. But the naming suggests the service of foreign gods. And then, verse 5, they are to share in the diet of the palace. Now, on the surface, this is a real perk. They're going to eat the rich food from the king's table. But what does it actually mean to them? And verse 5 also shows us that the training programme is going to last for three whole years. It's a full undergraduate degree, we might say, or it's an elite management scheme. Only 
You don't get to go home in the holidays on this scheme because you are headed for the service of a king who is a complete dictator. There's no home anymore. Can you imagine the pressure that these young people were under to conform? They've been brought into a total system that's designed to change them. And here's the fascinating thing. They don't buckle, but they also don't simply dig their heels in and kick out. They don't kick up a fuss about the new names. After all, what's in a name? As long as you don't let it determine your identity, you could accept a nickname. They don't refuse to do their studies, and they don't do their studies badly. In fact, they apply themselves so well, as we find out later in the chapter, that they're top of the class. They all end up A-star students, first-class honours. They use their considerable gifts to study and understand the wisdom and the culture of the Babylonians. But using magic and incantations and divination was forbidden to them. So we have to assume that they were able to engage with the studies of topics that they didn't agree with but they were able to do so in such a way that their faith wasn't compromised. And just a word now to the, the many students and researchers and people involved in intellectual work at our church. I think this is a word to you, isn't it? You'll have to engage with and study things that are alien to biblical faith, but it doesn't mean you have to refuse to listen. It means you have to drill in, prayerfully dependent on God, to find out what, what in there is of benefit and to reject that which isn't true. But notice that they did draw a line. Now we'll think more about this in a moment, but first let's just think about our own lives, shall we? Where are the issues where you and I face pressure to conform to the world around and its values? Where, where are the issues where you face pressure as a Christian believer to conform to the world around? I asked a number of people at our church for examples and the response was fascinating. There was a person working in a business who said, I'm not asked to lie at work, he's not asked to lie, but frequently I witness colleagues lie and I'm generally expected to stay silent. One example was an experience of being in a meeting with some clients and with a salesperson where I answered a question of how big the company was with about 150 people and the salesman corrected me and said 300 which wasn't true another experience I was asked to provide some very selective technical information by a salesman which I knew he wanted to use to mislead a client what do you do medics working in sexual health or obs and gynae having long discussions about abortion a system that refers for abortion and what counts as abortion, such as the morning after pill. That's a systemic challenge. Workers who are faced with the problem of working on a Sunday. Many of the colleagues come in then, perhaps you're also expected to come in. If they're busy, if the team is busy, we all need to get some work done. You're the one off on Sunday letting the team down. The self-employed person who has to declare his or her income. The temptation to blur the lines when it comes to declaring income as taxable. You know that many people, perhaps most people, are going to declare less to avoid the tax burden. And what about the students, high school students, 
undergrads. Pressure to conform to the values and lifestyle of the peer group. A teenage girl at our church shared how she was challenged at one stage at high school every single day about why she hadn't had sex yet. It was the main topic of conversation with the other girls at lunchtime. The boy, teenage boy, who was put in a situation with friends who were playing 18 rated computer games and he stood out of the side of the room where they were playing it and they told him, don't tell my mum. Where are you pressured to conform to the world around? Now in Daniel, we see that this tragic crisis has led to a situation where there's intense pressure to conform. And we're prompted to ask, how will these young Israelites fare? And here we come to our second point. This is a tale of courage and courtesy. Courage and courtesy. They find that there is a place where they need to draw a line. Look at verse 10. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief of permission, official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now, God had caused the official to show favour and compassion to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men of your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Now, what's the issue with this food and wine? The scholars have debated this at length. And the real issue is quite hard to discern. Some have suggested that the food would have been offered to idols in the temple before it was brought in to the king's palace and that's quite probable but if that is the case why is it that Daniel and his friends say they'll be able to eat vegetables and not meat and wine because the vegetables would have been offered to the idols as well others have suggested that the meat particularly would have broken the laws of the Torah the first five books of the Bible which were very specific about meat about how meat uh, animals should be killed the, the mode of their killing about meat should never be eaten with blood still in it, about the fact there were certain kinds of meat that the Israelites should never eat, and pork was known to be prized by the Babylonians, and they also ate a lot of horse. So there were certain kinds of meat that Daniel and his friends just didn't want to go near. Now that seems a bit closer to the truth, but actually, why would they abstain from wine, if that's the focus, because the Old Testament didn't forbid that? The best explanation that I've found is this, Daniel and his friends knew that the pagan culture they were in involved a lot of uncleanness. It was an unholy culture. But they knew that they could engage with aspects of it positively to an extent. They could engage with the learning and the language, the, the education. They could engage with the work and service. They could even engage with having a, a foreign nickname. But... When it came to food and drink, something here goes deeper. Sharing a meal with somebody in that world was very significant. Eating together meant sharing fellowship. It meant a degree of unity, of being bound together with that other person. It meant identifying with the people you were eating with. They seem to have thought... We can go so far, but we will not assimilate. We're going to draw a line here, and the line is the food and wine. So they make a daring request, and make no mistake, this involved enormous courage. 
Look at what the chief official says in verse 10. The king could have my head because of you if you look weak and unhealthy and he finds out I didn't give you the prescribed diet. Now, unless we think this is just a rhetoric, an exaggeration, remember Pharaoh in the story of Joseph back in Genesis? Pharaoh did genuinely take off people's heads in his service who he wasn't happy with. That's what they did back in the day. These kings were absolute dictators. Nobody's head was safe on their shoulders. It's a real threat. And that means that Daniel is risking his own head as well for the sake of some food and drink. It took phenomenal courage. And so he proposes, in the words of uh, Andrew Porter, one of our church members, the world's first clinical trial. He suggests that the guard discreetly allows them the vegetable and water diet for 10 days and swap out the rich food, which maybe the guard could eat on his own. And this just 10-day trial, we'll see how we look at the end of it. And you know, it works. It works. Verse 15 says, at the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. Now, is this an argument for vegetarianism? Some of you maybe would like to hear us say that. But the rest of the scriptures would suggest not, although Christians are free to follow their conscience in the matter. Rather, it is a picture of God's miraculous provision for those who are faithful to him. There is no real human reason why, after a mere 10-day trial with vegetables instead of choice food, these men would have looked so much dramatically healthier than the ones around them. But God is blessing them. God is pouring out his favour on them. And we're going to think about more about that in a moment. But let me just think too of one important detail here. It's that as well as courage, they demonstrate courtesy. And don't you know, don't you find it hard to hold both of those things together? I sometimes find when I'm being most courageous, I'm not very courteous. And when I'm being most polite, I'm actually being a chicken. But what they do is hold both together. Look at verse 8. Daniel comes and he asks for permission. Very respectful. Verse 12, he suggests the test. He gives, he gives a positive solution to this guard who's caught in the quandary. He says, please, would you test your servants? And gives them a positive outcome. In other words, believers need to find a way of making a stand in this world that works with the non-believing people and speaks to them with gentleness and respect. One of the examples that was given by our church members this week of an ethical challenge that he faced uh, was from a man who's a research scientist and he gave an example that came from some 14, 15 years ago when he was a doctoral student faced with an ethical issue about the creation of fertilized embryos, human embryos, in order to study stem cells. And he had pondered it and prayed about it and he decided to write to his PhD supervisor who was a world-famous scientist, the author of over 800 peer-reviewed publications and one of the main contributors to a Nobel Prize-winning body of work, a very significant player. And the Christian, his name was Jonathan, raised this issue which it, within a few years' time actually became a non-issue when other scientists figured out how to, to make, turn normal adult cells 
into what is known as pluripotent state. But at that point, it was an issue of creating human embryos fertilised in order to harvest their stem cells. Here's what he wrote. I quote some of this email because I think it's a great example for us of courage and courtesy. Here's what he wrote to his supervisor. Since you came to me many months ago to discuss the stem cell work and the cells that we would potentially receive and have now got in our facilities, I have been thinking hard about the ethical issues surrounding this field. Obviously, it's replete with advocates and opponents that have very strong feelings about stem cell research. Now that we are drafting this grant and that we're working with these cells, I really feel like I need to communicate to you where I stand on this matter with regard to my faith and this very important research. As you mentioned in our first meeting together over a year and a half ago, many other scientists wouldn't tolerate my proclamation of faith. So I hope you will respect my convictions. I believe that stem cell research is crucial and the potential benefits are immense for societies around the world battling with debilitating and life-threatening illnesses. I also believe that life starts at the point where a sperm fertilizes an egg. I am not ethically comfortable with the creation of new embryos for the sole purpose of harvesting stem cells. Consequently, the use of such stem cells is outside the boundaries within which I'd like to work. While it's difficult to know which direction science will take us, I wanted to communicate this to you now before we are faced with crossing that bridge. Thanks for listening. Best regards, Jonathan. Now, do you see how that combines courage, talking to a legendary scientist, uh, conviction, but also a great deal of courtesy and respect and putting forward the position? Now, I must say this, on many of the issues which Christians face, including a load of those that were raised by people from our church this week, there is no rule book in the Bible. The Bible doesn't give you a detailed blueprint and detailed small print and rules for every single situation in life. And you therefore need wisdom constantly, every day, every moment and every day. And you know, it was the same for Daniel and his friends. Just think about those young teenagers taken to Babylon, put in that fierce, pressured environment and having to make choices. Where are we going to yield? Where are we going to stand? How are we going to do it? This is the life of faith. It's a tale of crisis and potential conformity. It's a tale of courage and of courtesy. And finally, it's the tale of two kings. The tale of two kings. Because what we really need above all else is to know who's in charge. We need to know our God. And to do that, we need to know his word, the scriptures. The bottom line is, who is really in control? Now, in the ancient world, and indeed for most of history up until a couple of hundred years ago, the question of who's in charge is really a question of who's the king. And our chapter here is framed by kingship. This is history told in terms of kings. It's the story of kings. Look at verse 1 and 2. The third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. It's cast in, in terms of his the year of his reign. But who comes? The king of Babylon comes. A bigger king comes and destroys Jerusalem. 
and the Lord delivers Jehoiakim into his hand and the rest is history. Now look to the end of the chapter, verse 21. Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Cyrus was the king who came in and beat the Babylonians and brought in a whole new era. And actually in Cyrus's reign, the exiles were allowed to return. Cyrus sent them back and paid the check, paid the bill. And that was some 60, 70 years later, a 70 year exile. So you notice how Daniel's life, most of which is spent in exile, is framed by kings. Jehoiakim, the loser, Nebuchadnezzar, and finally Cyrus. So let me ask you, if this is a tale of two kings, who are they? And the answer is not what you think. The answer is on the one hand, any human king, and on the other hand, the living God, the king of kings. Notice the subtle but unmistakable indications of who is really in charge here. Notice quite shockingly in verse 2, who is it that gave Nebuchadnezzar victory? Verse 2 says, the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. God's people had rebelled and sinned and grievously offended God for centuries. They'd been sent warning after warning through the faithful prophets who they mistreated and in some cases killed. Finally, the, the warnings that God had given them came true and God handed them over to their oppressors. The verb literally is gave. The Lord gave them into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. Then look at verse 9. This is now coming down to the micro levels of detail. Now, God had caused the official to show favour and compassion to Daniel. This official didn't need to do that. God is working in his heart to open the way for Daniel to do the clinical trial. And then in verse 17, to these four young men, God gave again. And in this case, he gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. They get insight, they get uh, intelligence, they get wisdom. Daniel gets a kind of uh, supernatural insight into visions and dreams. And it's all given by God. You see, in the ebb and flow of history and the mighty rolling tides of kingdoms and empires that rise and fall, as we find in this passage, and continue to this day, there is one firm foundation, there is one constant ruler, there is one who is ultimately above the flood and above and behind every king and ruler in this world, no matter how powerful they may appear, it is the living God, the Holy One of Israel. Faith learns to see with different eyes and faith learns to see that whatever things appear like on the surface, Behind that, the Lord is king and there is no other. He will do what he wishes. And that's where Daniel chapter 1 leaves us, with these main lines of inquiry, these main themes and questions laid out. The crisis, the crisis and the pressure to conform. The need for courage and yet courtesy at the same time. And the question of who's actually in charge of our lives, and in charge of our world, and in charge of history. And as we close this message thinking about that, let's cast our minds forward a few hundred years to the pivot of history 
the time where AD turns into BC with the birth of Jesus of Nazareth. Because there we find a young man who is, you might say, very far from home, one who was transplanted from a place of absolutely faithful, truthful values into a world of squalor and dirt, born into a, um, born in a, a stable and laid in a manger, one who through his entire life was tempted, Hebrews says, in every way as we are, but was without sin, one who faced the greatest temptations of all in the desert after 40 days of fasting and weakness, Satan came to him and offered him the most tempting prospects the world could offer, and yet he stood firm. One who was tempted to withhold himself from the greatest sacrifice that he was called to give on the cross. One who cried out, Father, if it is your will, take this cup from me, but even so, not my will, but yours be done, and, and boldly went to the cross, who dared to obey God in the face of the greatest opposition. One who was torn apart by his enemies and yet raised to life on the third day. And one who appeared to be an abject failure, and yet all the time was accomplishing the greatest victory that the world has ever seen, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour. And let's consider him as we walk into the world this week with whatever challenges it may face us. Let's consider the one who held, who did not hold back and did not shrink from what was before him, and the one who even now is with us by his spirit to the very end of the age. And may God bless you and enable you to dare to be a Daniel this week. Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we need courage and conviction in the crisis of our times. And yet we also need courtesy. We need to be people who know their God and do great exploits and people who are people of the book and know your word. And we need wisdom. Grant these things to us, we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.